very much for that ministry and music. Good to see you all here tonight. Thank you for coming back. Those of you online joining us, welcome to you as well. Trust that you have picked up a handout. Pastor Brandt has already mentioned that and that you are ready for our consideration this evening. Uh, tonight is short. Uh, it's a brief portion of Ecclesiastes, but it is pretty self-contained. It carries much of the same topic, so I decided just to look at this rather than to go on, and uh, we'll pick it up next time. Uh, I uh, am uh, speaking to you on a Sunday night. Tonight I've entitled this A Topsy-Turvy World. A Topsy-Turvy World is when the world seems upside down. It is when things happen the opposite of what we would expect. It is when there seems to be no rhyme or reason to life. It is when people behave in a totally incongruous manner, that is, inconsistent with what we would think that people would do in the positions that they hold. For example, in 2009, a firefighter, Jerry Engel, uh, pled guilty to arson. We certainly don't expect firefighters to be setting fires. In 2009, the IRS was headed by a man who did not pay his taxes. In 2005, Stockbridge school principal Pamela Neff was fined $100 for illegally passing a school bus. We wouldn't think a principal would be passing school buses, but nonetheless, it happened. And we can go on and on with so many examples of people who betray the trust, who do not act in keeping with the positions that they hold. In fact, act quite contrary to what we would expect. This is one further aspect of vanity as Solomon considers life. So Solomon describes a topsy-turvy world in the passage that is before us. It is a world in which the righteous experience what we'd expect the unrighteous to experience, and the unrighteous experience what we'd expect the righteous to experience. The key verse is Ecclesiastes 8.14. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. Uh, this uh, outcome that is contrary to what we would expect, uh, that uh, righteous people are treated as though they are unrighteous, and unrighteous people treated as though they are righteous. Here is Solomon's issue with life. People who do evil seem to get away with it. The people who do good find themselves in difficult circumstances, with the net result that the wicked experience what we'd expect the righteous to experience, and the righteous experience what we'd think would happen to the wicked. Last week we concluded with the idea that there are no schemes, there are no formula, uh, that can be created that guarantees a certain outcome, that if you do A, B, and C, then D is naturally going to follow. If you live your life in a certain way, uh, you can expect that you're going to receive all kinds of blessings and wonderful things happen to you, and if you live your life in a certain way, you can expect that um, terrible things are going to happen. Uh, certainly there are consequences to the decision we make, and yet many times we see this inconsistency uh, we see this discrepancy, perhaps a better word, in which righteous people seem to suffer and unrighteous people uh, seem 
to escape that suffering. So, number one, the wicked are often honored, even right up to the day of their death. So, A, the wicked are honored in the time of their death. It says in verse 10, Then I saw the wicked buried. In the Old Testament era, the burning of the human remains was a way of dishonoring a person. Sometimes the body was simply allowed to rot in an open grave. Either way, a person was dishonored. A burial, on the other hand, was a means of bestowing honor on those who had died. So in this simple statement that says, I have seen the wicked buried, it's saying, I've seen this inconsistency of here these people that have lived wickedly have an honorable burial, as opposed to letting their body rot, or as opposed to uh, have many cremated. <clears throat> and let me just say that that's an Old Testament example. Uh, certainly, uh, there's nothing wrong with cremation today, but that is the way in which people viewed the care of the body in the Old Testament era. B, these wicked are those who pass themselves off as righteous by attending public worship. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place. So their hypocrisy is, is blatant. They are living and acting wickedly, but they regularly go into the holy place. They regularly go to the house of worship, and uh, nothing seems to be uh, out of kilter with that. Uh, and yet, they live very unrighteously. One would think that they would never get away with it, but they do. These wicked individuals are praised, even though their deeds are well known. For it says, then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the place, of the holy place, and were praised in the city where they had done such things. Their exploits are soon forgotten. Now we have a, a series of different ways in which this particular phrase is translated. Uh, in the uh, ESV, it translates that they were praised in the city where they had done such things. And I'd be follow suit. They were praised in the city where they did this. And in the NAS, it says, and they are soon forgotten. And that is the way in which the NAS, excuse me, the King James translates it as well. They are soon forgotten. How do you reconcile those two translations? Well, number one, the evil is forgotten in the very city where it was committed. The idea is that it didn't seem to matter. There were no consequences throughout life right up to and including the time of death. Their evil deeds never caught up to them. Not only was justice delayed, it was never experienced. There is an old adage, be sure your sin will find you out. Galatians 6, 7, be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever man sows, that will he also reap. In these situations, those words seem like empty platitudes. Or again, Ecclesiastes 18, then I saw the wicked buried, they used to go in and out of the holy place. They were praised in the city where they had done such things, this also is vanity. Application, we have all attended funerals of people who were scoundrels and yet were well spoken of. Uh, rarely, rarely do you encounter a situation in which a person's dirty laundry is, is aired in public during a funeral. People know, people are aware, 
but it isn't often mentioned. I am aware of a situation that I encountered a number of years ago where I performed uh, a funeral of an individual who was not a member nor even attended the church. But in a rather obscure way, some of the family members had some familiarity with the church, and so they asked me to do the funeral. And so I said that I would, and I met with the family. And the son said to me, during that time we gathered together, they said, if you say anything good about my father, you'll be a liar. He said there was not one good thing about him. Well, that's tough. And uh, that's a very difficult situation, and it's one that I've only encountered once in which somebody actually said something like that. But oftentimes it is. When a person dies, they're well spoken of. And Solomon says, that's vanity. That's vanity. The wicked should be humiliated. The righteous should be praised. But we live in this topsy-turvy world this described. Then he takes it a step further. Since punishment is slow in coming, unrighteousness increases. Ecclesiastes 8.11 Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. So the premise is that because evil deeds are not punished right away, people do not see it as a cause for fear or concern, and so they continue to do evil. So this verse teaches us that punishment of crime is a deterrent for others to do evil, or at least it should be. However, the further the punishment is inflicted from the time the crime is committed, the less of a deterrent it becomes, which is what is expressly said in verse 11. Because the sentence against evil is done is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. So there's a problem. When there's a long time between the committing of an offense and the actual punishment that comes. See, there is a large debate over the death penalty and whether or not it is a deterrent to murder in our society. And I've sorted cited two sources here just to give you an example of what we are talking about. The first is the position of the ACLU when it comes to the death penalty. And it states, frequently asked questions raised by the public about capital punishment according to the ACLU. Question, doesn't the death penalty deter crime, especially murder? The ACLU's answer is this, no. There is no credible evidence that the death penalty deters crime more effectively than long terms of imprisonment. States that have death penalty laws do not have lower crime rates or murder rates than states without such laws. And states that have abolished capital punishment show no significant changes in either crime or murder rates. Then there is this article It's taken from the Journal of Criminal Law and Criminology, summer of 2010, under the title of How Much Do We Really Know About Criminal Deterrence, written by Raymond Paternoster. And the introduction, and this is all quoted material, 
This article discusses the particular and important role of the Journal of Criminal Law and Criminology in publishing the works of those who were highly critical of deterrence theory and those who wished to keep it alive, though vividly aware of the lack of any empirical support for it. It goes on to say, this article discusses the theoretical connections that are presumed by the deterrence process and briefly reviews some important empirical studies pertaining to each of those presumed causal connections. So it's an article about whether or not the death penalty actually deters people from committing murder. Going on to read, the empirical evidence leads to the conclusion that there is a marginal deterrent effect for legal sanctions, but this conclusion must be swallowed with a hefty dose of caution and skepticism. It is very difficult to state with any precision how strong a deterrent effect the criminal justice system provides. At the very least, there is a great asymmetry between what is expected of the legal system through deterrence and what the system delivers. There is greater confidence that non-legal factors are more effective in securing compliance than legal threats. It is argued that the empirical evidence does support the brief that belief that criminal offenders are rational actors in that they are responsive to the incentives and disincentives associated with their actions. And then, I, this bolding is mine, but that the criminal justice system, because of its delayed imposition of punishment, is not well construed, uh, constructed to exploit this rationality. In other words, the study comes to a conclusion that the reason it's not a good deterrent is because there's such a long period of time from sentencing to actual uh, punishment. Three, according to the Bureau of Justice and Death Penalty Information Center, and again I'm quoting, the average time from sentencing to execution was just around 16 years. If no appeals are raised, that process can happen as soon as six months, but that rarely happens. So the average time is 16 years. You can see that that's quite a long time away from sentencing. And it says that, therefore, it's not a good deterrent. Well, that's what our passage says. The longer there is from a time of punishment, from the time that an act is uh, committed, the less deterrent that punishment will be. D. Despite that it may appear otherwise, Psalm is convinced that the righteous will ultimately and finally be rewarded. Number one, it seems as though people do evil repeatedly and get away with it. Ecclesiastes 8, verse 12. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life. So the premise here is that people do evil things repeatedly. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times, you could say 500 times, you could say a thousand times, the point is, though it's seen that people do evil things time and time again, and B, it seems as though there is no consequence, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, all right? So he gets away with it and actually lives a long life where a person who can live righteously may die at a young age. And Solomon says, number two, nevertheless, Solomon is convinced 
that the righteous will be rewarded. 8, verse 12. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. The ungodly do not fear God. Psalm 36, verse 1 says, Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart, that there is no fear of God before his eyes. A person who commits habitual sin, ipso facto, doesn't fear God. They're, they, they are not concerned about consequences. They're not concerned that that sin is going to have any practical negative impact or consequences <coughs> to their life. <coughs> Sometimes people's conception of the love and mercy of God is that God is so loving and so merciful that he simply will not and does not punish sin. And there are, even in the evangelical world, it's a minority view today to even think of a literal hell. Uh, most evangelicals don't believe that there's a hell. There's a place of eternal punishment. Uh, they see that as inconsistent with the character and nature of God. So the psalmist says that those who do not fear God do not change. Whereas fear of God is a great motivation for holiness. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So the fear of God does bring about a measure of holiness. People that are afraid that there's going to be a consequence to their actions obviously are going to behave differently. So Solomon goes on to say, despite how it looks now, the evil will be punished and the righteous will be rewarded. Things will not be great for the wicked, verse 13. But it will not be well with the wicked. He will not ultimately or finally prosper. Life is short and he will die one day. It says, but it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow. Now here, earlier, he said that his life will be prolonged. Now, he says, but his days will not be prolonged, they're like a shadow. So, what gives? Well, he's saying that as you compare, yes, as you look at the righteous and the unrighteous, you might say, well, that person lived a longer life. But the longer life that we're looking at may be 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, maybe even as much as 50 years. But 50 years in light of eternity is nothing. 50 years in light of eternity is a speck. It, it's a meaningless, almost, amount of time. So he's saying those, those days are just like a shadow that, that comes and goes. And Solomon is recognizing that there's going to be an ultimate and final consequence to the believer and to the unbeliever. His failure to feel, fear God will be his undoing. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. Uh, there are the uh, 
unbelievers do not have a fear of God. And as I said, generally within our society, there is no real fear of hell. Uh, you hear people talk about a living hell. You people hear people talking about a hell on earth as though this life is so terrible. It's like living hell today. But let me tell you, the worst day on earth cannot be compared to the best day in hell. Uh, hell is a tremendously hideous place, and the consequences are huge. The Puritans were known for preaching the love of God. They were also known for preaching the wrath of God. And of course, one of the most famous sermons was... Uh, Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That was part of what produced the great revival in the uh, New England states as people considered what it meant to enter into a godless eternity. Conversely, despite how it looks now, the righteous will be rewarded. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God. That there will be justice in the end. That right will prevail. That God will reward. Now, he doesn't go into this in any detail, but he deals with the basic facts. Conclusion. The vanity is that in this life, all too often, the righteous are treated like they are wicked, and the wicked are treated like they are righteous. That happens in the court systems, that happens in gatherings, that happens in many different settings. B, it must be remembered it will not always be that way. A day of judgment and reward is coming, both. There will be a time in which the wicked are judged, there will be a time in which the righteous are rewarded. C, don't be discouraged because it is not happening, happening immediately. Now, we're going to be introduced to in antithesis. So bear with me. If the delay of judgment proved not to be a deterrent for evil, then a delay for reward may be a deterrent to doing good. If you lose sight of the fact that there is going to be a day of reckoning. If you lose sight of fact, not only of judgment, but of reward, if, if you don't keep in mind that there's gonna be a time in which you will hear the words, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord, when there is gonna be a time of handing out uh, rewards, crowns, that are gonna be coming from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, if you lose sight of that because it's so distant, because it's so far away, because there's such a distance between the time of committing the righteous deed from the time of reward, that you will lose hope, you will lose confidence, you will lose encouragement. Just as the person who commits evil but doesn't experience punishment loses sight of the eventual punishment and therefore it doesn't affect their lives. So too we have to be on guard 
that we don't lose sight of the reality of a future reward. It's distant. It's distant. But it's coming. But it's coming. The topsy-turvy world will be made right. Let's pray. Almighty God, I pray that you would continue to encourage us and give us faith, help us to endure, help us to realize the temporal nature of this life and how short it is. It is like the dew on the grass. It's like the grass that quickly withers. Life is so, so short, and eternity is forever. Help us to live this life with eternity in view. And may we understand that though this world is topsy-turvy now, it will not be in the end. Justice will be meted out. God will set all things straight. Help us to take a long-range view, picture of what we are experiencing today. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. And we are dismissed.